Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along with me as I read. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Avery. Reminder to be praying for our college students as they go back to school and, of course, our 12th graders, seniors all the way down to preschool or back in school. We're going to pray for them as well as our teachers and administrators that are in here in attendance. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that you are the one who saw fit to send your son in order that it all could be paid for. Thank you for our salvation that is found in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have, the peace that passeth all understanding. That contrast with the world becomes, seems even more greater in the days in which we live, where hope is fleeting, peace is foreign. Lord, we're so grateful for our identity in your son, Christ. Lord, for our college students, high school, junior high, elementary, and even further down, Lord, we pray for these young people. Guard their hearts. Protect them from the evil one. Be with our teachers, administrators, Christians, whether it's mom homeschooling, whether it's a private Christian school or it's a public school. Lord, in any of these venues, we need godly leaders standing in the gap. And so thank you. Guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. And it's in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 1. It's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember, that's the Gospel we had been studying prior to Christmas. And we now will finish our journey through this book uh, I think in April of 2023, no, uh, April of this year. So we're excited about that. And as, we, as I was reflecting on this, I realized we need a bit of a review perhaps, or if you've just joined us, 
This third book in the New Testament was penned by Luke, a Gentile. He tells us in Luke 1 that he's writing to Theophilus, which is also Greek. And why is he penning this gospel? And scholars debate, there's certainly a pastoral side, an apologetic side, a didactic teaching side. But I think some of the questions that Luke needs to answer to Theophilus is, if this movement is so great, how, how are Gentiles allowed to get into this mix? I mean, this Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And if Jesus really is the Messiah, why did he die on a cross? And why is this movement called Christianity facing such opposition? And so as Luke pins this narrative, it's so that we can see, yes, this is what it means to follow Christ. The gospel is laid out. In fact, Luke is volume one. The book of Acts is volume two. Uh, and it's laid out geographically. We start with a census from Rome at the beginning of Luke's gospel and all the way to about chapter 4, verse 13. We focus on those early years of preparation. From 414 all the way to 950 in Luke, it's focused on Galilee. It's, that's headquarters. That's home base. And as the ministry starts to develop and, and the lines are starting to be drawn, by 951, we're now moving to Jerusalem. That's all the way to end of chapter 19, verse 27. So this is where we're headed. And we're in this section right now. And as Jesus is moving to Jerusalem, the opposition has become far greater. The lines are being drawn. And Jesus is trying to equip his disciples. As, what does it mean to follow me? And more specifically, you need to be ready. Because what lies in Jerusalem is not what you expect. I'm not taking over the Davidic throne. Instead, I'm going to bear the curse for humanity's sin at the cross. And so that's where this gospel is moving. And in this section, in chapter 17, Luke is going to lay out four principles of discipleship. I love what one scholar states in this section he writes, these verses are indicative of Luke's treatment of the theme of discipleship. He said, in this presentation in 17, it's more extensively developed, more radically expressed, and more consistently sustained than any of the other gospel writers. And I, I think that's a fair assessment. So let's look at this, and if you have your notes, you can follow along. There's a quiz later on after the service. But in 17.1 to 3a, we see the first component of a disciple, and that is dealing with the matter of a warning and a millstone. And Jesus said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come. They're inevitable. <laughs> they're there. Spiritually, they're there. <clears throat> but notice, but, woe to the one, and that term is used frequently of the religious rulers, but woe to the one through whom they come. This idea of a stumbling block is the Greek term scandalos, scandalum. It's later, I think, where we get the term scandalous. It's, it's an incitement of sin. It's setting up a snare or a trap. And certainly the world, through we see even in Scripture, the world is, is one that sets these traps up, these stumbling blocks. But Scripture also states it's not just the world, it's people. It's, it's the wicked within the world, and it's false teachers. 
In fact, one text, 2 Peter 2, states, but false prophets also, watch this, arose among the people. They're in the camp. They're they're in the kumbaya circle. (laughs) They're claiming the name of Jesus. And he said, these are false prophets that are among us. And he said, just as these false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive opinions, they even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And Jesus states here, as disciples, as followers of me, be very careful because woe to the one who sets out these stumbling blocks. And and Luke highlights this, as I mentioned, of the religious rulers earlier in chapter 11. Jesus said to the experts of the law, he says, woe to you for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hinder those who are entering And so Jesus, go back to the text in 17. He says, be careful. Don't do this. He said, it would be better for you, and you have this graphic scene, don't you, of a millstone that's wrapped around the neck, and then you're thrown into the sea. Because, he says, it would be better for that to happen than to cause one of these little ones to sin. The little ones here shouldn't be seen as children. Uh, That can be, but I think it's far greater. This is the lowly. This is the vulnerable. These are those that are maybe struggling in the faith. And he says, listen, you might as well put a millstone around you. Millstone were hourglass. To to, to grind grain, there were two millstones. One was uh, cylinder shaped. And then on top of this set an hourglass. It would would cradle it on top. And then you'd put the grain in the top and come down. And then the, the stone would be turned. They would weigh hundreds, perhaps thousands of pounds. So you get the idea here. (laughs) And and trust me, drowning in the the Sea of Galilee, uh, remember that was something that the the fishermen pointed out. Peter and company, right? Or we're going to drown. This is awful. So that fear was there. And and it's harsh. Bach in his commentary says, the harsh death would be a better deal than what this one would get from God. The Lord said, it would be far better for you to drown in the sea with a millstone attached than to cause someone to stumble. And certainly throughout the New Testament, Romans talks about the stronger exhorted not to cause the weak to to fall. Remember this, the text in Romans 14. How? How how is this happening? Certainly through false teaching. But it's accomplished through, I would argue as well, tarnishing the name through our actions. We, we don't want to validate the accusation from some that Christians are hypocrites, right? You hear that all the time. And sadly, they can usually cite a chapter and a verse. Our lives need to reflect Christ. A task only accomplished, I would argue, through being in the word, praying, gathering with the saints, and nurturing the fruit of the Spirit. That's the danger. And the Lord says to his followers, be careful that you don't cause others to sin because of your actions. But there also is your words, isn't it? Through what we say and what we teach. 
I had a former colleague who loved to challenge his students, but he pushed the envelope, I would argue, way too far. <laughs> he applauded doubt. He liked to philosophize and strut his intellectual prowess. Consequence, I would have some of his students coming to me, and I can still remember one in particular who said, you know, I can't know that Christ rose from the dead anymore. Whew. Take heed, because Jesus just stated, you might as well go put a millstone around your neck. We who are teachers as parents, grandparents, as a pastor, we have a responsibility to, to create a safety net for our, uh, our people, right? <laughs> to ensure, yes, we want them to think on their own. Yes, we want to, to see them mature and grow. But we have, a, we have a responsibility. I wrote down, we need teachers, and also I wrote parents and grandparents, who are meeting real spiritual needs by serving the true God, rather than catering to young people's preferences reacting to student evaluations or delirious of earning the parent of the year award, seeking academic accolades at the expense of orthodoxy or cowering to multiculturalism. We are called to live out the gospel, a message not of human origin nor rooted in human approval. It's no wonder in 3A you have this very bold statement, this, this interrogative. He says, watch out! Prepare yourself. I like the word watch. It's strong. And by the way, it's a present imperative, which means it's ongoing. This isn't just something to, to take heed once and you're done. There should be a constant evaluation as a teacher. Constant evaluation. Where are my students? Are they coming, coming up with some ideas that we need to clarify? And, and, and as a parent, do we, we need to have a, a powwow? <laughs> oh, wait, you said something. We, we need to clarify that. Or I said something that, that may have created some confusion. We're responsible for those under us. And, and as church leaders, the danger is not that one dies before causing one to stumble, but death is preferred even here before eternal judgment. And that is what looms. And so Jesus said, as, as, as followers of him, the first thing he says is, you need to guard your life. Take heed on your actions and on your words because you will be held accountable for that. People are watching. Secondly, we see here in this next section in verse 3b, says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This is a, uh, the construction is if this, and I'm not saying it is, is how it's being conveyed here in the Greek, uh, he may or may not. And if you repent, then uh, you need to, if, certainly saying he will or will not, then if he does, forgive him. What is the implications of these admonitions? Notice what it says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. What, what's the implication from that? Here's a few of you are just jotting down some notes. First of all, disciples are to share in each other's commitment to pursue righteousness. If I'm not in someone's life, then I can't speak truth to them, right? Uh, this, this means that uh, we're attached in some way. I, I'm in their life and I'm observing them. I'm listening to them. 
Disciples are not to pursue their spirituality in isolation from one another. Faith is not a merely a private affair. Third, sin should not go unchecked. Oh, I, I like to have a dollar for every time I've heard say, oh, we're not to judge. Woe to him who judges, and I don't want to take that role. And, you know, it's it, whatever one, one, someone wants to think, well, that's okay. We'll leave it at that. Or, you know, it really doesn't concern me what they're doing, though I will put it on the prayer list. <laughs> uh, you know, so you have this idea, this mentality. And according to Jesus, he says, listen, if, you're, if your brother sins, you need to rebuke them in love, of course, Ephesians 4, remember we're to speak the truth in love. And confronting sin should not be hindered by fear of a brother's refusal to accept the admonition. That's also stated here. Uh, repentance isn't contingent or the rebuking isn't contingent on them repenting. You pray they do, that's the goal. And I've heard people say, well, they would never listen. I, I'd never tell them. She, she, she does not like to be told what to do. Or he is so stubborn, there's no way. Careful. That's not an option here in the text. It's, it's not a watchdog approach. We're not going around with a billy club waiting for someone to mess up and then beat them. And, and that's happened in the church. And that's not what the text is saying at all. Uh, but it is saying that we, we're to encourage and help one another in this process. And, and notice what the text says then. If they repent, forgive. Even if he sins against you, notice it's personal, seven times in a day. Can you imagine? Uh, seven times they come up to you in one 24-hour period to say, I'm sorry. By the second time, I think I'd say, well, maybe you need to join the guy with the millstone in the, the sea. <laughs> you can forget it, all right? Notice the implications for forgiveness here. Forgiveness needs to be extended, the text tells us immediately. There is no, well, I need to think about this. Or, well, let them stew a little bit before I grant any forgiveness. After all, you know, they deserve that. But let's think about this. Why did we confront them for sin in the first place? It's so that they could repent, right? So that they, they could turn to the Lord and, and grow in their relationship with him. So why wouldn't we forgive? That was the desire and, and why we initiated all of this. And so forgiveness needs to be extended immediately. You know, I wrote down, let's face it, it's far more easier to point out how one has been offended than it is to forgive the offender. <laughs> Isn't it? And pastoral care, it's usually the problem is the latter, dealing with those who are unwilling to forgive. And the Lord states it needs to be immediately. Secondly, implication is forgiveness should be granted freely. We're not to question the genuineness of the repentance. Seven times seems a little crazy. Now, let me give a little caveat. I am not saying there aren't consequences for sin. Nor am I saying there shouldn't be caution in relationships going forward if certain things have occurred. But it's clear here it should be given freely. Third, forgiveness holds no strings. I, how often we hear, I can forgive you, but I will never forget. <laughs> there are consequences for sin, yes. But if the wrong is continually rehearsed, 
I would argue it's not been forgiven. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said he uses the analogy of burying a hatchet and you leave the handle out of the dirt. He says that's so you can easily pick it back up again. <laughs> Don't do it, right? Granting forgiveness, here's another point, is costly and often painful. Let's be honest. No, it's, it's personal here in verse 4. Such an act of granting forgiveness contradicts human nature as we die a bit more to self. <laughs> forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Right? And so the text tells us, no, we're to forgive if it's seven times in a day, which that reference of seven is, is, is meaning it is to be exhaustive. There's no limit to this. I also wrote down forgiveness is a test of both our faith and our love. Remember, how did the Lord teach us to pray? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's huge. It's scary. Don't pray it if you don't mean it. Because <laughs> the implications are enormous. Matthew 5, 43 states, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was what was taught. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The forgiveness can even come before they ask, can't it? I think that's what Matthew 5 is saying. It's, it's, it's hard to love and, and, and dwell in that without extending forgiveness. Ultimately, why do we forgive? Because we're seeking to become more like Christ. Forgiveness is at the heart of the narrative of the gospel, isn't it? If, if not, it, it's through, it's, then there's no redemption of sin. Jeremiah 31, the Lord states, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And 1 John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, what? To forgive us. If he can do that for us, with all the crud we lay at his feet, it's the least we can do over here. Right? That's, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to the cross. And you who want to follow me, uh, take heed. <laughs> you, you, you need to make sure we are holy as a community. So that means rebuking those who are walking in sin in love and making sure we're extending forgiveness. It means guarding our lives so that we're not creating a stumbling block. And he gives us another, and I love this image. This is, this is fun. He says in verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Oh, I love it. Bless their pointed little heads, right? Good for you. So the Lord says, well, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you'd say to this black mulberry tree, be pulled out by the roots. Uh, we, my parents bought some property and it had, we dug out 200 stumps. So I know full well what it means to dig out the roots. That's horrible. It's, it's awful work if you've ever done it. But he said, you dig up the roots and, and you're going to throw it into the sea. And by the way, it's passive voice. So it's indication is that God is the one who's going to perform it for you. And it will happen. 
This text, uh, it falls on, he's saying, listen, you need to have faith. Now, what is faith? It's reliance on, an, on, uh, on another to provide something you cannot provide for oneself. That's uh, what the paralytics did. Remember back in Luke 5 when they lowered the friends of the paralytic lowered him down through the roof to the Lord. They had faith. It's a simple belief that expresses itself concretely. But why a mustard seed? Right? To move a mountain. I mean, I would say if you have faith like a lion, wouldn't that be better? Or if you had faith like an NFL defensive lineman, that's, I mean, that's the kind of faith we want. But faith like a mustard seed? Are you crazy? I mean, the ancient, the early church fathers understood the analogy to say that the faith that is represented here is great, it's strong, despite what it might appear to be. And Luke 13, remember, talks about that, that like faith like a mustard seed will grow and it, it creates this huge tree in which the birds of the air can be a part of. Or the, the kingdom is the idea there. But it's used as an illustration of it, that growing to a tree. Here, that kind of faith, like a mustard seed, causes a tree to move. In Matthew's counterpart, he talks about a mountain moving. It, 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 it's figurative to describe how our faith can accomplish what would appear to be impossible. Right? One commentator says this image is designed to delight and provoke thought and wonder about faith. However, that interpretation has gone a bit to the wayside because in more recent times, commentators will argue if you have just a little bit of faith like a mustard seed, God can use extensively. And this is the normal interpretation. Why? Because again, mustard seeds are tiny. In fact, I wrote down there, they're less than one seven hundredth of a gram. There's an old Arab saying that says that a mustard seed will not fall through the fingers of a miser. <laughs> it, 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 so it was used as an analogy of something very small. But mustard was also known as very potent, very strong. It was used for the taste buds. It was even thrown into wine. To, to, I can't imagine, you know, making this thing strong in taste. Augustine said it's hot and it's vigorous. In a recent article I read this past week, I, I'm in agreement with James Scott in Trinity Journal the interpretation that what the Lord is saying is that you just need faith that's small, I don't think is what he's saying at all. And I had struggled with this for some time because, let me give you a couple reasons why. Disciples were reprimanded, if you remember earlier on, because they had little faith. Their faith was small. And the Lord said, no, 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 you need to have great faith. That doesn't seem to fit here. If you have a little bit of faith like a mustard seed when they were condemned for it or brought, you know, exhorted not to have such faith, nowhere does weak or little faith accomplish much in Scripture. Secondly, the grammatical construction here also creates a problem. It's contrary to fact. If you had faith you could say is a better way to render this. Thus Jesus is stating that they do not possess the faith currently. 
In other words, I would argue their faith is not strong. And so going back to the early church fathers, I think what we're dealing with here is not the amount of faith, but the quality of the faith. It's not strong. It doesn't accomplish. And my, that, that destroys a lot of sermons that I've heard. <laughs> if you just have a little bit of faith, I don't think that's what we're addressing here. It's, it's faith that you would not recognize. At least the world wouldn't recognize. They look at it and go, oh, that's unimportant. It's like a mustard seed. And yet, whew, the ability that that mustard seed has to produce. Well, you say, Hophidus, that's great, but what is genuine faith? What is strong faith? What does that mean? I wrote down a few items. First, this faith stems from the hand of God. Throughout Scripture, God's people live by faith. But the idea of faith develops as God's revelation of grace and truth. It's on which faith rests. In other words, God is the author of all saving faith. I would argue the disciples aren't going to have this faith until the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. This kind of faith is needed. We, on the other side of the cross, with what Christ has accomplished on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, and the indwelling of the Spirit, have the ability to have this kind of faith because it comes from the hand of God. Faith, this kind of faith, is active. It's not passive. You're not going to sleep on your Bible under your pillow and the next morning, whoo, you're moving mountains. Faith is a catalyst for healing and forgiveness. Interesting it should fit within this context that's already been laid out. Faith is often best expressed through consistency while undergoing the ordinary activities of life. Think about it. Faith holds to a conviction that God's designs are inevitable and that his promises are always congruent with him as an all-loving, all-powerful God. It's the type of faith that's celebrated in Hebrews 11. Remember the hall of faith? That chapter, and it was a who's who. And they're commended for their faith. A faith that was steadfast, it was sure, it endured. It's a trust that, that moves forward without doubting. James 1. Oh, we might doubt how God might work, but we don't doubt God's character and that he will work. In Hebrews 11, in this hall of faith, and I think this is where we can see a great example of what does it mean. There's a personal relationship with God, there is an inward conviction, and there's moral courage. And so when you start going through that laundry list in Hebrews 11, you, you see these heroes who moved mountains. Let me give you an example, a few examples. Enoch was taken up into a fiery chariot, feeding, uh, cheating death. Noah withstood a global destruction. Abraham became the father of a Jewish nation. Sarah gave birth to a child at age 90. That's moving a mountain, right? Moses, he, he, he led the Israelites out of Egypt. All in Hebrews 11. These folks moved mountains. A faith similar to a mustard seed, I would argue, is a faith that clings soundly to God's promises when our world is surrounded by lies, doubt, and deceit. A faith similar to a mustard seed is a faith that grabs onto hope when our world is bleak and full of shattered dreams. 
A genuine faith, one that's powerful like a mustard seed, embraces love from a world which is full of hate. It is a faith that knows peace in a world full of turmoil, division, and anger. It's a faith that finds assurance in a world that continually disappoints. It's a faith that possesses identity in a world that is fleeting. It's a faith that testifies to intimacy and acceptance in a world full of broken relationships. That's the kind of faith that we see. It's the kind of faith that we read of in Hebrews 11. And it's a faith that we often sing of in the song, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Remember the old hymn, if you don't know it, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And I love the next verse. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. A great theologian of the 1900s was asked, how do you summarize theology? He said, oh, very simple. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. In the midst of the chaotic world, and, and you want to accomplish the impossible for the Lord, you're going to need a powerful faith. And how does that faith look? Just look to Hebrews 11. And, and, and look at these individuals who God used to figuratively move mountains. So, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does that entail? We see the first part, that is we need to guard our lives. We need to be careful. Second part, as we see here, and what does it mean to be a follower of him, is that we need to be in tune with one another, confronting, forgiving. Third is that we need faith. And then he comes to the last part here. And it's the only parable, this parable is only told in the Gospel of Luke. And it says, would any of you say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding sheep, come at once and sit down for a meal? Can you imagine? Imagine, you, you young people, imagine if your teacher says on finals week and you come to class and, this, and she says or he says, hey, don't worry about the final exam, I already took it for you. You got an A. Eh, that doesn't happen. Eh, that, that's not good. <laughs> I, I, I re recently read five things you should never say to your boss. Listen to these. Things you shouldn't say to your boss. Mind if I step out early today for an interview? <laughs> Not good. Your job isn't that hard. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. I didn't want to be here. <laughs> I'm so bored. Or the last one says, I do not see myself at this job very long. <laughs> you can say that again, right? Those are things that an employee, you shouldn't say to an employer. And, and here, Jesus gives us, your response is the same. I think the response that you would have heard from the audience, the crowd. They would have been laughing. No master says that to a slave. Are you serious? In fact, notice what the master does do. He has him work manual labor in the field or, or, or tending sheep. The master expects the servant to come home and fix him dinner. There's no Grubhub. There's no uh, DoorDash, right? So you got to do it. 
The master's not going to do it. He commands the servant to dress appropriately for the meal. You know, you, you've been out in the field. You got to change your clothes before you fix, you know, my uh, falafel. Uh, the master requires the slave to attend to him while he eats and drinks. The master allows at that point for the servant to eat and drink. And then add to the mix, the master never says thank you. There's no gratitude. Why? It's expected. You're the servant. I'm giving you a roof over your head. I'm giving you food. You will tend to me. That's why I hired you. And then Jesus gives the clincher. So you too, when you have done everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are slaves. We are here to serve. That is a religious term throughout the New Testament in our relationship to, to, to what the Lord has expected. Doing the will of God. He, Ephesians 6, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus states the Lord's servants do not ask for a raise. They do not go on strike or form a union under the Lord's leadership. Instead, we gladly serve knowing full well it is a great honor to serve the Lord Almighty. Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yes, your law is within my heart. Isn't that a great verse? This is what Romans 12 says is our reasonable service. This is what is expected from God Almighty. And, and, and this idea, well, you know, it says in the last verse, we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what is our duty. And so the Lord states, you want to be a disciple? You want to follow me as we prepare for what lies in Jerusalem? Here's these points. And again, they're there under principles from, from these traits of a disciple. We're called to guard our hearts, our actions, our words, so that we're intentionally pointing others to Christ. A believer's graciousness and willingness to promote restoration should have no limit, just as Christ has none for us. Genuine faith relies solely on Christ and obedience, patience, and hope. And lastly, our obedience in Christ does not obligate God to us. You want a great example for all four of those? Look to Christ. <laughs> Look to Christ. He was not a stumbling block. He was the cornerstone. He came to forgive sin. What faith? I mean, even Hebrews 12 talks about who's the the pioneer of our faith, Christ. And when it comes to obedience and duty, what did Christ state? Not my will, but your will, O Father. <laughs> There's a quote at the bottom of your notes. Discipleship is not merely another commitment, which we add to the long list of other commitments. It is the commitment. Demanding a reordering of our lives from the bottom up. This isn't natural. <laughs> it's, it's not what the world would say, would it? But it is what Christ has encouraged and exhorted and ordered for his followers. And he so beautifully exemplified what that means in his life. Father, thank you for your word. We've talked a lot about what it means to follow you 
as those who've made a profession, those who have claimed to be Christ followers. And there may be someone sitting in this room who does not know you. And they hear all this and they think, why, why would I go that route? <laughs> it seems very demanding. Oh, but it is. We're told to take up our cross and follow you. But the reward <laughs> is worth it all. We're either enslaved to the things of this world or we're enslaved to you. There's no other option. And your yoke is light. Your burden is, is light and easy, and we thank you. Father, help us to be faithful this week. It's hard as we see so many things turned upside down in our world. Some concerned about their jobs, others it's the fight of COVID or loved ones who have it and they're concerned there. For some, it's just the unknowns of the world we're living in. There's China, there's Russia, there's North Korea, there's Iran. The list goes on. And yet in the midst of it, we're reminded you are on the throne. We are yours. Lord, thank you. Help us to serve you well and to love others well. In Jesus' name. Amen.